there's a, a, a form of suffering that goes with that. Hmm. When you're when you're inauthentic, when you are denying yourself an honest pursuit of the truth, especially about who you are personally, it's a form of bondage. It, it's a it's a form of loneliness that's painfully acute. Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are creating space to reimagine the church for our current moment. And you just heard there from my new friend, Rob Shank. Uh, Rob is the founder and president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. He's the subject of the Emmy award-winning documentary, Armor of Light. And before all of that, he had been significantly involved in the religious right at, at really high levels. In fact, you're going to hear him talk about that. He'll briefly mention sitting with presidents, having meals with all Supreme Court justices. He'll talk about like that work and a little bit of what he was doing in there. And he goes on a bit of a faith journey that my guess is many of you will find some resonance with. In fact, that clip that we just heard is him describing a bit of the experience of what happens when there is a inward thing that is going on in your own sort of personal faith journey and ethics and when it's being lived out in a different kind of way publicly for all kinds of reasons and pressures that are both external and internal. And he'll he'll share a bit about his own experience of that. Well, one of the fascinating things, I mean, you're going to hear so many fascinating things from Rob. I think um, I I loved this conversation, and I think there's so many more things that we could talk about. You'll, you'll hear that. But one of the fascinating things about him is that he did his doctoral work comparing the evangelical church in Germany, in Nazi Germany, with the evangelical church in America. And this was this like this predates that becoming the thing a few years ago where everybody's talking about, like people will make those comparisons and people will do it sometimes at a surface level and sometimes people do it almost flippantly, but he's actually done significant, significant like doctoral work level work on that. So he'll talk a bit about that. So uh, friends, you are in for a treat with Rob here in just a moment. But before we get that to that, I wanted to remind you, we have our gathering coming up in October they can start registering for at michaelsworthy.com. This is the post-evangelical collective gathering. It's meant for pastors and artists and other church leaders, people who are reimagining the church for our current moment and maybe have felt a bit alone. Maybe the phrase that we've used is that you feel ecclesiologically homeless. You're not quite sure where you belong in the larger church landscape, but you're trying to reimagine it. You are trying to figure out what does it look like to have a faith that's that's rooted, it's received, it's it comes out of this tradition. And yet at the same time, we're asking new questions. We're trying to figure out new, new expressions. We're trying to figure out, how, well, how is it lived out in this moment? And, and, and the reason that you are here at this podcast is because my guess is for many of you that I've interacted with, like that's been your experience. And so if you're trying to figure out like, how does this work itself out in the church context? That's what this gathering is for. It's a group of us who are uh, people who are leading churches, women and men, who are involved in some sort of way and caring about what happens for the future of the church, who are gathering together to learn from one another, to have some shared solidarity and to know that we're not alone. 
to create some space of rest and listening to the spirit and to, and to learn some things together. I mean, this year, this year we're going to have these pre-conference workshops that are going to be incredible. Uh, it's October 11th to 12th, uh, in the morning of the 11th, these workshops that are going to be like super practical, uh, like our friends, Meredith Miller and Sarah Swartz and Druber, they're going to be walking us through like how to think about children's ministry in this space. Uh, our friends who you've heard from on the podcast, uh, Brenna Rubio, Bill White, they're going to be talking about dismantling toxic leadership patterns. Uh, 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 we've got, oh gosh, I, I could go on and on. Like the, the, like super practical workshops. Then we've got some great speakers lined up. I'll, I'll just, I'll let you in on a little bit here for those of you who listen to the podcast of um, David Gushy. Uh, Dr. David Gushy is going to be with us. He was on the podcast early on. He is going to be sharing there a bit about like, how do we locate this post-evangelical movement or whatever it is you want to call it, but how do we locate this movement in church history? How do we locate this movement in the theological spectrum? Like what, like where are we sort of located within the broader movement of Christianity? What has happened there? So he's going to talk about that. Uh, James Paik, who uh, is a part of Common Hymnal, he's going to be leading worship. He's releasing some great solo stuff right now. You can look him up on Spotify, James. P-A-E-K or find him on Instagram. He's great. So like, we've got, uh, I, I won't go on and on and on and tell you all the things. I'll save some of that to keep releasing more and more. But but go to MikeGoldsworthy.com to find more information. I have talked for way too long because I really want you to get to hear from Rob here. There is so, there's so much good stuff here. So let's go ahead and turn it over there. Joining us today is a new friend, Rob Shank. And Rob, you tell me if I'm off on any of this bio that I'll give here. You're an ordained pastor. I am. Okay. You spent 30 years as a political activist with the religious right. I did. I did. And then right now you're acting as the founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute out of Washington, D.C. I am. I am. And that's saying a lot because there's a long and very complicated journey written between the lines of that short bio. Well, that's why I'm just given a short bio because I want you to get to share with uh, folks some of that journey. Like what, what does that journey look like? Because obviously the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Institute, when we can get into the work that you're doing in a little bit, but for folks that don't know about it, is doing some different work than what you were doing with political activism on the religious right. So do you mind backing up for us a little bit and giving us a bit of the story of kind of your own faith journey and how you've gotten to the place where you are? Sure. I know you have a limited amount of time, so I'll hit some of the high points, maybe some of the low points uh, along a, a nearly 50-year journey now. 40 years of ordained ministry this coming month in May mm. of 22. So a lot of decades here. And if we go back, you know, I was raised in a nominally Jewish home in upstate, actually Western New York state, right on the border of Canada. I could literally look out my back window of the home I was raised in and see Ontario, Canada, look out the front window and see the suburbs of Buffalo, New York. So it was really kind of a netherworld 
three miles upstream from Niagara Falls in the middle of the Niagara River. And my parents raised their four children to really make, they were very liberally minded people. And they challenged all of us to make our own decisions, including religious decisions. So they said, you'll go out and you'll shop different religions and you'll make your choice. And I fell on a wonderful little Methodist church, quintessential country church, white clapboard building, short spire, overlooking a literal cornfield. And I uh, went inside with a lot of fear and trepidation because I had never been in a church. I was 16 years old. I'd never been inside a church. And I had all kinds of imaginations about hooded monks intoning Latin prayers and lighting candles and that sort of thing. And this was not that. It was a very comfortable, casual group of people. And the way they reflected, really, I, 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 I'm reaching for words because it, I, I want to describe it as an almost supernatural love for people. Hmm. They were so loving and warmly inviting and accepting. And I had never experienced that, not in that sort of setting. And I was welcomed in, came back, heard a minister from England talk about knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. And at first it sounded weird to me. It was like, how do you get to know God through a dead person? <laughs> you know, that's yeah, yeah, kind of weird, yeah. but it, 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 you know, with time, I, I, you know, I listened and sat and contemplated the message and then responded. And that's what I call my first conversion experience was going to the altar. You know, as many people who've come from that kind of religious tradition will understand there's an invitation to come forward in the sanctuary and to kneel and to say some words to God. And I did that. And everybody told me, you've been born again. And I was a born again Christian. And what I like to say, especially people who know my long history of later right-wing political activism, very conservative political activism, I'll say, you know, shortly after that, two years later at age 18, I cast my vote in my first presidential election. And who did I vote for? Jimmy Carter. Why? Because he was the born-again candidate. And I wanted somebody who clearly lived out their Christian faith. And he, I thought he did then, and I think he does so even more now at, what is he, 97? Yeah, yeah. Still here. But my formation was around a Jesus, I like to say a Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, who blessed the poor, who consoled the bereaved and, and people in pain and, and experiencing loss, somebody who blessed the peacemakers. And my family was an anti-war family. I marched in an anti-Vietnam War demonstration when I was 13 years old. All of that was in keeping with my own ethics. And, and that was my first conversion. But I would undergo two more conversions in my life. And one not so much for the good. So should I go there? Yeah, go. Let, let's start. Let's start with the not so much for the good one. Yeah. Well, that came in the mid 19, well, I should say early 1980s. Okay. When by that time 
I had felt a call to ministry. I'd been to Bible college. I was now an ordained, young ordained minister. You did a lot of things at a young age in ministry. I did too. I was the youngest ordinand in my class. I was 21 years old when I was ordained. And by 23, I had taken my seat at the table of national leadership in the National Association of Evangelicals. And Ronald Reagan of California fame, I say to my new California (laughs) friend, was the first sitting president to address a body of evangelical clergy. That was in the early 1980s. I guess it was 83. And did Falwell put that together or is that like, does that predate Falwell? Falwell orchestrated it. Yes. Uh, There were other actors within the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, that actually brought it to pass. Some of them would become my friends and colleagues over the years. But I sat there literally in the front row, felt the glow of presidential affirmation, and it just sucked me in. And I call that my conversion to Ronald Reagan Republican religion. Yeah, yeah which is distinctly different from Christianity. It's distinctly different. I'm not going to say I abandoned Christ, but I got him all muddled up. Some days Ronald Reagan was the Savior. Some days Jesus was the Savior. And I would stay on that track for 35 years, a very long time. It took me to Washington, D.C., where I would eventually interface with three presidents, with leaders of Congress. I would sit with all nine justices of the Supreme Court for dinners. And then I felt the glow and the warmth of power. Yeah, yeah. And prestige and privilege. And I'll tell you something very seductive, and it's like the siren call that everyone should avoid, and that is your first invitation to fly on a private jet. Hmm. Because once that happens, you at least I lost all my sensibilities. And eventually, I would lose sight of that Christ I met in the little country Methodist church back in 1976, uh, 74, excuse me, and where I would stay until 1976. So all that to, to say, I, I found myself in Washington, you know, plying the, 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 the places of power. And then I had a crisis. I met a filmmaker, Southern Californian, I say, I'm, I'm trying to earn points here. <laughs> Southern Californian. Abigail Disney, who is uh, part of the Disney uh, Entertainment Empire family. Very serious woman, by the way, not simply an heir, head heir, heiress, I should say, as she's quick to always say. I'm no, I'm no airhead, and she is not. Earned PhD from Columbia University, owns and operates several very profitable entertainment companies. But she left the church at age 18, and when I met her in her late 50s, she had never returned. And she wasn't interested in religion, but she said, you know, you evangelicals have a problem. 
your people are the most likely to not only have access to firearms, but to support unfettered use of firearms. And you practically worship the Second Amendment. And she said, I'm going to challenge you to take a good look at this problem in your religious community and do it on camera. It took me a long time to say, yes, I did. And that took me on a journey examining my spiritual and religious community in a way I had never done before. And that would lead to a third conversion. Yeah. So before we get there, I'm kind of curious about a few things during like the, the 30 years of religious right activism. And you said like now looking back at it, that you'd lost Jesus during that time. I'm kind of curious that how you would have described it during that. Cause I'm guessing during that time, you wouldn't have said that you lost Jesus like that. Would you have seen it as like, cause you were really involved with, if I remember right, like getting the 10 commandments in a lot of public places yeah. and some anti-abortion activism and organizing a pretty significant like rally at Washington around that. Yep. And so I would assume in all of that, whether you're being driven by this or not, you would have said like, this is what Jesus wants me to do. Would that be fair? Yes and no. Okay. Yeah, please. Because I had a kind of public faith and then I had a very private faith. Interesting. My public faith had clear guardrails to it. You know, there was a set track and it was very firm and very well maintained, very clearly defined. So I stayed publicly, I stayed on the tracks. And I had to, for a lot of reasons. One was to maintain my, my position and influence. The other was frankly, to maintain a living. Um, I was financially rewarded for my work in very big ways. So I stayed on track quietly, privately. I had a lot of doubts all during those years. And sometimes they troubled me in my sleep, you know, wake me in the night. I do a lot of pacing. I know that I, you know, ground more than one molar in those years. There were lots of whispered conversation with colleagues who dared reveal their secret thoughts. And in those places, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure this is consistent with the gospel, but, and, and as you know, at the risk of taking a cheap shot here, I'll zoom forward, fast forward to 2017, sitting at the national cathedral at the post inaugural prayer service for the newly minted president, Donald Trump. And I was in the front row, lots of old colleagues and friends were there. Uh, one of them, a national Christian figure, uh, national evangelical figure, whose name everyone would know, who knows that world. And a whole lot of people who don't know that world too, a headline maker. 
And I went up to him and I said, you know, I, I wonder if this isn't a prompt for us to return to the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. Because I was deeply troubled by the election of Donald Trump by then for many reasons. And he looked at me and he said, maybe you have time to do that. I don't. I'm trying to run a big operation and it costs a lot of money. And you go and do that. I've got serious stuff to do. In other words, his reference point wasn't the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus. Yeah. It was, it was a bottom line financial, basically. And more than that, it was also the political power and influence that comes with all of that wealth and name recognition and, and so forth. So that kind of stuff was going on episodically in my mind and in my heart and in my soul over all those 30 years. But there were very few places you could air your secret thoughts and be safe. So I learned eventually to just lock them up in a little vault uh, in my conscience. And it just kind of sat there for a very long time until finally I, I dared, dared to open it hmm. one, one night. Do you think for most folks and not just the religious right, the religious left also like folks that get sucked into the machinery and even the, like the allure of all that comes with power and invitations and the closeness there, it like, is there a good percentage of them that you think have these wrestlings? Is there a good percentage of them that have just kind of grown numb to it? Is there a good percentage of them that just sort of like start to equate the two together, their faith and the, that kind of work that they're doing or yeah. Like what's kind of normative do you think in that space? Well, this isn't very scientific, but sure. You know, based on my experience, I'd say it's about half and half. Okay. Half that are like wrestling and half that are just kind of like yes. numb to it. Okay. Yes. Or, or that are, that utterly are convinced and believe it. Yeah. That this is the. Probably more than a few of them just simply won't give themselves permission to explore mm -hmm. anything beyond, you know, they have very solid wall of defense and, 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 you know, comfort that have been erected and they're not, they're not going to venture beyond those walls, e even though at times they may have a, a little temptation to do so, but they won't allow themselves to do it. So, it, it, you know, there's a lot of that. And, and for that reason, and I don't want to excuse anyone's, you know, bad behavior or deleterious you know, activities, I'll just say that sometimes I feel for them because there's a, a, a form of suffering that goes with that. Hmm. When you're, when you're inauthentic, when you are denying yourself an honest pursuit of the truth, especially about who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, it's a form of bondage. It, it's a, it's a form of loneliness that's painfully acute. That that's so helpful. Cause it's one of the things I've tried to be really mindful of in my own faith journeys. I want to keep coming back to like, what does it look like to humanize people? And especially 
right? If we're going to, if we're going to center our faith in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're going to love our enemies, which means that like, we have to, we have to humanize them and which is difficult, hard work. And to think about, to have empathy for somebody who's in a position doing things that I might have some real issues with. And it's really easy to take pot shots and it's really easy to stand over here and to like have some empathy to be able to say like, Oh, I wonder like, I wonder if there are some internal wrestlings there that make things really difficult for them. I wonder if they get up in the middle of the night and grind their teeth as they pace their living room, trying to figure out what's going on. Like, Anyway, all that to say, I appreciate you just cracking that open a little bit in me. Thanks for that. Well, you know, even lately, we've seen some colleagues of ours, I mean, peers, I should say, who've taken their own lives hmm. because of that agony. Yep. You know, so there is a lot of suffering there. And again, you know, we have to be careful. I understand I'm married to a psychotherapist, so I get a lot of help with free therapy. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, that without blame shifting, there's a lot that goes on behind, you know, you've been a senior pastor. I've certainly sat, I stopped counting after I'd visited a thousand pulpits uh, preaching as a guest preacher. So I've been to a lot of churches and sat on a lot of platforms looking out over congregations. And sometimes those congregations are quite threatening to the person sitting on that platform because the message is, if you ever bear your soul to us and tell us what you really think inside, we will punish you. Yeah. You will be punished and not just you, your spouse and your children. So just stay right where you are doing what we expect of you. And that's what it can look like. Now, it may be true, it may not be true, but it's a perception that, it, that only exacerbates that suffering and mm -hmm. that loneliness and isolation of a leader who's having secret thoughts, you know, and, and we could define that further. But anyway, all that, yeah, then, yeah. I, I met plenty of them in my career, and I was one. Yeah. Well, so then that leads you to your, your third conversion, as you called it, and which like ends up with you and I in conversation as a result of that. So do you mind sharing a little bit about like, what did that journey then end up looking like that Abigail Disney invites you to examine the way that the way that the second amendment and gun violence is sort of like ingrained in the waters, the syncretism between that and evangelical culture and like what, yeah, how does that all start to play out? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the product of that unlikely partnership of, you know, this right-wing conservative Christian activist and this very left-wing filmmaker was an Emmy Award-winning film, I don't mind mentioning, called <laughs> The Armor of Light. I would uh, mention that all the time. Now, just so that people understand, you don't get paid for being in a documentary, so it doesn't mean anything to me that she won an Emmy except to say the film was really worthy of an Emmy. She did an excellent job. And, you know, she came along as I met with evangelical leaders all across the country and sat and talked with them and preached in many sanctuaries. And by the way, in one of the most conservative sanctuaries in the country, Abby and her film crew were there, 
And she left that experience and she said, I have never felt so much love, genuine mm -hmm. warmth in one place as I did there. And that was saying a lot for a woman who would probably tell you I'm as left as you can get in America and still stay <laughs> in America. She's a real progressive, but she felt something very genuine in this middle America conservative church. So, you know, there's, we got, as you say, we humanize people and look at them three dimensionally, not two dimensionally, but all that to say when the film was completed. Well, let me go back before the film sure, and tell you that I took a little hiatus. I took a leave of absence from my work in Washington and I went out West, uh, to Seattle uh, where I completed a doctor of ministry at, um, faith evangelical seminary, which was my master's degree, alma mater. And in that I undertook a study comparing what happened in Nazi-era Germany with the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany, and what was happening with the American Evangelical Church oh, in this day. Yeah, yeah. And as I examined that on a doctoral level, which is quite intense, I mean, you're, you're going very, very deep, the parallels between what happened in Germany that led the evangelical church in Germany to declare Adolf Hitler a gift and miracle from God. That was their declaration. It was read in church pulpits. And what was happening in the United States? While I was living out on the West Coast, I took a flight back east to attend the 80th birthday bash of a very prominent evangelical figure in America whose guest of honor was none other than the then aspiring presidential candidate, Donald Trump. So I spent an evening with Donald Trump in a room with evangelical leaders from all over North America. And that really gave me the willies. I, I was really disturbed by that for a lot of reasons. But when I drew the parallels between how the church in Germany was seduced into supporting Adolf Hitler, the comparisons with how the church was being seduced into supporting Donald Trump and Trumpianism, as it was Nazism, was stunning. Hmm. And I remember the night sitting in the basement library at the seminary and opening some books and reading journal entries of pastors and how they were feeling about this crisis. Most pastors in Germany did not support Adolf Hitler or Nazism, but they could not speak it because they would lose their jobs. They would lose their reputations. They would be ostracized. I was seeing the same thing happen here. Yeah. That's super fast. I did not know that, especially thinking about how in the 2016 election, how it was a majority of evangelical leaders didn't support Trump, but a majority of their congregants did. And we saw this disconnect there that, that a lot of us didn't know what to do with. It kind of felt like uh, pastors didn't know how to lead through that, all, all of that sort of stuff. And you were seeing in your doctoral work direct parallels, not just with the way that 
what they're talking about publicly, but even their own private wrestlings. That's super interesting. And the same was true then, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Yeah. We, we go through these things over and over again. And by the way, it was in that library that I discovered the book, the resource I had had on my shelf for a 35 year ministry career by that time, Gerhard Kittel's, uh, yeah. Dictionary of New Testament Theology, you know it. Every evangelical pastor has it yeah. on his or her shelf. Everybody has it. When I was yeah. in Bible college, the word was always, before you preach a sermon, check Kittle. Yeah. Go to Kittle, meaning the New Testament, uh, the and, Testament of New Testament Theology. And did you have the full deal or did you have little Kittle? I had, I had both. Okay. I had little Kittle and I had the full Kittle. I, always I could only little afford Kittle. little Kittle. I always went to the little Kittle. It was the easier one to use. No one had ever told me that Gerhard Kittle, my resource for virtually all my, at least when I would handle a New Testament Greek text, was Adolf Hitler's resident theologian and gave him a theological defense for genocide against Jews, Roma, and what they then qualified as homosexuals. It was Gerhard Kittle who delivered up a theological defense for mass murder on a scale the world had never known. No one ever told me that. No one ever bothered to tell me that. And the haunting question is, why not? Yeah, I'm, I'm the, the thing that gets started. I'm today years old when I'm learning that. Um, <laughs> okay. So you Bonhoeffer then ends up having an impact on you. Very much so. It would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this young, brilliant, very brave German church leader who was one of the first voices to speak out against Adolf would eventually lose his life when he was hanged by the Nazis at the Flossenburg concentration camp at age 39, newly engaged to be married. And Bonhoeffer left a very complex uh, body of work, particularly on Christian ethics. And in fact, his, his magnum opus was ethic, was ethics. And I challenge everybody to read it. It is as thick as you can imagine. It mm. is it is no easy read, but when you read between the lines, you really get the sense of Bonhoeffer's Christology and the centrality of Christ. In fact, one of his well-known titles is Christ the Center, and how Christ is to be the center of our faith. And and he goes after, for example, what you know what we used to whisper in a naughty way back in the day as bibliolatry, you know, the worship of the Bible above Christ, that somehow this leather bound volume of, you know, Elizabethan English, uh, text was somehow more than Jesus, the living word. Well, Bundhofer helped me to get back in touch with the living word. Yeah. not the dead two-dimensional flat word 
but the living dynamic word of God in the person of Jesus and how, how to return to the Jesus I encountered in that little country church. By that time, you know, 35 years earlier, and the one I saw who was so compelling, that the one who, who took care of the marginalized and the poor and called us to deny ourselves and to follow him. And that's what I call my third conversion. So that happened really, truly in a dank, damp, mold-infested library in, in a, you know, a kind of rundown building out in Seattle. And it revolutionized me. And when I returned, and I know you have a similar story to this, and, and I can't wait for you to tell it in, in my world now, I suddenly realized I don't belong here anymore. Hmm. I never belonged here, frankly, and I need to leave it. So eventually I would leave. I would have to leave, frankly. I had to leave. It, it, it's kind of a coward's way out because there was no way I could remain where I was for 35 years. And I walked away from an organization I had built over 35 years. We had 50,000 donors spread all across the country. We had nearly 3,000 churches that we were related to. We had a headquarters building literally across the street from the Supreme Court, a block from the Capitol, 10 minutes from the White House. I would literally look out my office window into the chambers of the Chief Justice of the United States. I was over there a lot. It was like my second home at the Supreme Court. And I had to leave all of that and start all over again in a tiny little office, actually about the size of what used to be an old phone booth. Mm. Uh, no staff, none of the trappings, went from eating in a private supper club of the elite in Washington to the taco truck that would show up on Tuesdays because it was Taco Tuesday and that's when I could get an affordable meal. But that was the richest, most beautiful experience of freedom and deliverance that I had had since my first conversion almost 40 years. Well, 40 years earlier. Hmm. As you're describing that, I'm thinking of several of the folks that listen to this are pastors that have in some level had some similar kinds of experiences of loss of loss of belonging and whether that was that they uh, no longer fit in the church that they were a part of and were asked to leave, forced to leave, or just knew they had to leave, or in the kinds of churches they started. There's several folks listening to this that have been kicked out of associations that they were a part of, networks that they had belonged to, lost speaking gigs, lost income, all, all of the sorts of things. I'm curious, when you're engaging with folks that have gone through that similar sort of journey, like what, what are some of the words that you're offering them? Well, one is just simple empathy. Yeah. Been there, experienced that, even the panic that goes with it, the anxiety attacks, you know, the second thoughts, the haunting second thoughts. What have I done? Why did I do that? Maybe I should have found a way, a modus mm -hmm. vivendi to stay. 
But what I want to encourage anyone in that situation to do is first to ask why, what, what was the kernel of the thing? What, what did it really get to? Why did you make the exit? Why did you head for the exit door? And I think most often that has to do with freedom. And you know, that's, that, that's the heart of the gospel. That's what this message is that we embrace, that we try to live, that we try to proclaim, that we try to generously share with others is, you know, in the old language, we would say, you know, we're in bondage to sin. Well, if, if you look at what bondage is, there's really no greater bondage than, than to be bound in conscience. Because, I mean, let's, you know, we're not getting into a theological dissertation here, but where is the law of God, the, the freedom of God written? In the conscience. So, you know, there's a Pharisaism, that's another term of art we would use in the old world that locks us into a kind of legalistic bondage and it's the pursuit of freedom. So for me, experience of freedom, there, there was nothing compared to, to the luxury, you know, all of the pleasure and the privilege and the security. And, and I understand, especially if you have a young family, there's a, there's a, an issue of security there. That's a very real one. And, and that has to be addressed. But at the same, you know, I was older, my, my kids were independent and, and they were adults. So it was just my wife and me, and she's a professional. So it, we had a little bit of a cushion landing, which some people don't have at all. And I understand that. But what I will say is while there is pain and there's insecurity and there's some anguish and maybe some real anxiety attached to that, the reward is in the freedom of conscience. Hmm. You can live before God and others, and, and I won't leave out yourself, in an authentic way. And for me, in those more painful moments, that was the succor. That was the solace that I found. Yeah, that's so good. That I feel like parallels a lot of my experience so far as well. I've encountered folks who I hadn't seen in a while, and they'll be like, you just feel so much more free. Like they've used that sort of language. Gosh, Rob, you and I, like I, I figured this before we started recording too. Like I think we could talk for a really long time, and I don't want to nope, miss... <laughs> We could go down these, like, well, we'll have to find some more times to have you on because there's so many more things I want to ask you about. But I don't want to miss folks learning a bit about the Bonhoeffer Institute, the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Institute and the work that you all are doing. Because I think it seems to me to be really helpful work for this moment that could be really helpful for churches, for individuals that, that are trying to figure out, like, ethical frameworks for things. Like, what... What is a grid? How do we figure that stuff out? So do you mind like shifting a little bit and just sharing a, a bit about the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Institute and the work that you all are doing? Not at all, because I love that work. I love the work that we're doing. And, and I like to say in my secret life, I'm in love with a dead German man. 
<laughs> I do have a kind of romance. In fact, you can see. I don't know. Are we actually on video or is this audio? We're not. Too? We're not recording the video. Okay. Yeah. But if you could see, just behind me is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a huge, larger than life, literally, portrait of him that sits in my home study because I argue with him. I have all kinds of interesting conversations with him. And again, I'll just refresh everybody. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born 1906, died 1945. Um, he was the scion of a very Grew up in a non-religious family that had deep spiritual uh, inclinations, but were non-religious, and chose at age 14 to pursue theology. He was mocked for that by his family members, but he was determined. And just to get a, a, an idea of the kind of mind he had, he, he did his first doctoral dissertation at age 21, did his second doctoral dissertation at 23. He was a genius. But he really also had his feet on the ground and immediately got engaged with work with the underclass in uh, working class Berlin and eventually went to Spain and worked with, you know, real common ordinary people and even poorer people. And the core of his Christology was that it was impossible to know Jesus Christ apart from suffering because Jesus was the suffering Savior. So to see Jesus in his clearest form in, 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 in the world we inhabit is to get as close as possible to the suffering, to those who suffer. And, you know, of course, that's very much in keeping with the Sermon on the Mount, which, again, was at the core of his uh, theology. And Bonhoeffer would eventually um, take on uh, leadership of an underground seminary when Christian formation of clergy became illegal in Nazified uh, Germany. He would stand up against the Deutsche Christen movement, the German Christian movement, which pretended to be uh, a, uh, a theological support for Adolf Hitler and Nazism. Eventually, he would be arrested, imprisoned for two years, and then hanged unceremoniously in the backyard of the Flossenburg concentration camp just two weeks before the Americans liberated that camp. So all that to say... He's, he's, he's quite a figure in history, but I think his greatest contribution was his work on Christian ethics, which he wrote in hiding in a monastery at the foot of the Bavarian Alps. And when you read ethics, you really get the heart of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of what it is to live as a Christian, but the treaties he never finished at the time of his murder was on what he called religionless Christianity, which this guy was prescient. I mean, he was so far, you know, what do we say f beyond his time or f far? Sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, before his, before his time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And you know, he was looking way, way into the future. 
and really leaves us a rich work. So we, we talk about what, what the Bonhoeffer Institute does more than anything else is help to shape and form ethically courageous leaders. And Bonhoeffer said, if you're not willing um, to go beyond your own preservation of self, then you really don't know what it means to live as an ethical or Christian person. And, and that would be tested in a unique way when he was challenged to join the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And that's a discussion for another time. But basically what he said was, if the preservation of your own conscience is worth more to you than rescuing others from, you know, unbearable suffering, then you've got your priorities wrong. Huh. You, you have to be willing to even incur what he said was possible damnation for the sake of others. I think that's terribly Pauline. Now we're into seminary talk. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. We could so much. So there's so much that we could talk about, but to make sure I want to respect our time here. So if somebody, if somebody's listening and they're like, they're compelled by the idea of being shaped as a ethically courageous leader, what does that look like for them to be involved, to get shaped in that way? Like how, well, the one thing I made a huge and embarrassing mistake when I was doing my doctoral work, and I said to one of the great Bonhoeffer scholars in the world, Peter Frick, whom you would love, by the way, Mike, he's cut from the same cord of wood as us. I'd say he's a little smarter than me. But anyway, Peter Frick of St. Paul's Lutheran uh, College in Ontario, Canada. But I made the mistake. He's a translator of Bonhoeffer's deepest works. And and I said, you know, I'm just trying to distill down the kind of three principles of Bonhoeffer. And he said, there are no three principles of anything in Bonhoeffer. There, there's no cookie cutter. There's no, you know, seven points or eight steps, nothing. It's, this was, this was Bonhoeffer's key question. What is the will of God for me? in this moment. And it won't be the same as the will of God for someone else in another moment of time, certainly not in another place. There is nothing universal here. It's peculiar, particular, nuanced, specific to you. And that's, that's your challenge. So we say there's really no webinar you need to attend. There's no workbook you need to fill out, although we do have resources available. But what we do try to do is go on a search with folks who come to the Institute and look for the answer, which only an individual can answer. And that is, what is the will of God for me in this moment? So we invite you into relationship, basically. So reach out. We're at TDBI for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, T-D, T as in the, D as in Dietrich, B as in Bonhoeffer, I as in Institute, TDBI.org. You'll find a way to get to us. We'd love to know you. Yeah, I'll put it up in the show notes. 
And so, yeah, it, the best way for folks is to go on there and contact you. Is it like, I know that you've got some like, is it learning communities or learning cohorts that you've got cohorts. going? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar to the space you inhabit now. Mm -hmm. I think there's something really complementary there. We probably get, we wax maybe a little more academic. Sure. Little more formalized, but not by much, just by a hair. The one thing you will find at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute is a very expansive exploration of theology, Christology, ecclesiology, the study of the church, because that's what Bonhoeffer was all about. If, if all you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer is that he was a brave young pastor who suffered martyrdom at the hands of the Nazis, you know 15% of Dietrich mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer. I have a whole library behind me of Bonhoeffer's work that was preserved, literally buried in the ground during World War II and reclaimed from the mud after the war. And, you know, Eberhard Wiedka, his close confidant, preserved all of his work, and we have it today, and it is life-altering. So we're going to talk to you about Bonhoeffer until you don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> But come on our way and at least try it out. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I love, I think one of the very unfair and wrong critiques of folks who say, who will see people go through a faith shift like the one that you and I have gone through is that they'll say like you're throwing the scriptures away hmm. or that like, you know, that you, you're letting culture determine, blah, blah, right? Like those sorts of arguments. And the, the thing I always tell folks is like, it was actually the scriptures that led me to this place. It was actually like deep study of these things that have led me to the place where I'm at. And so to have folks like you who are offering those sorts of resources to help people like wrestle through that stuff, I think is just super affirming and helpful. And like, I just can't wait to get to know you all more and to get to do more work with you. Only wish folks could see how deeply I was nodding my head with what you were <laughs> saying. Uh, deep, really soul deep agreement, Mike. Yeah. Well, Rob, we're going to find more ways to do more work together. So I'm sure, I'm sure this is not the last that, that folks that I connect with will get to hear from you. So thanks for making some time today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I can't wait to get to know you more. I can't wait for folks to get to hear more about you. And for folks to, to connect with the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Institute and to, to learn from you as well. It's been my pleasure, and I can't wait to do the same. I'll be sitting where you're sitting now with you on the other side. And maybe we'll make, you know, maybe we'll put the two stories together and see what that's yeah, like as a, as a pair. But I can't wait to hear a much deeper telling of your own journey, too. Mike, it's yeah. always faith building for me. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Thank you.